God wants to free your mind. And this is something which is really interesting. For so long, we've been taught that, you know, the confines of religion, they want to slow down your mind and think for you. But that's not actually true. Actually, throughout Scripture, we find God time and time again coming to people saying, I want you to think freely. When God made Adam and Eve, he gave them a unique will that they could think for themselves. And this was an opportunity for love because with the ability to think, with the ability to use one's will, one can freely conform that will to God. Adam and Eve, they were made sufficient to stand, though free to fall. It wasn't till the serpent came along to them that the serpent wanted them to no longer use their minds as God intended them, where they are freely thinking and working and living with God, but instead he wanted to think for Eve, to give her ideas that would really quell the, the goodness that God had in store for her and allow her to just surrender to foolery. Well, today we're going to look at Acts chapter 4 and learn how God wants you to think freely. He wants your mind to be free. And Barnabas is who we're going to examine today. Now, Barnabas, he's a Christian who appears there in Acts chapter 4, verse 36, but he actually appears before that. It's quite possible that Barnabas is the rich young ruler that we find there in the Gospels. And today we're going to look at Luke chapter 18, verses 18 through 30. And we're also going to look at those last few verses in Acts chapter 4. And for the purpose of the study, I recommend you go and spend some time both in Matthew 19, 16 through 30, Mark 10, 1 through 3. Um, just looking at these places where you find the rich young ruler. But today we're going to look particularly at Luke 18. So in the book of the Acts, we, we know that the Acts of the Apostles, they're carried out after Jesus has ascended into heaven, the Holy Spirit has come and rested on the church, and now the church is carrying on the ministry of the gospel, not in opposition to Jesus and not really in separation from Jesus. Yes, Jesus has gone to heaven, but he is now working with them. The Holy Spirit is resting on them, and they are doing something with Christ that is really phenomenal. It's not this moment where Jesus says, all right, I resurrected. I'm snapping my fingers. Now everything's a utopia. No, there is work to be done. There is an opportunity for the lost to come and know Christ. And today, as we look at Barnabas, we are shown something which is really, really important. The gospel wants our minds to be free. And now a free mind is not a mind that's without metrics or rules or something which actually shows us the good and evil, because that would just be anarchy. That would be chaos. If there's nothing in our mind that says this is good, this is the heaven to be admired, the hell to be repulsed, well, then it's just the suicide of the brain. The brain has no motivation to do anything. It would just sit outside and die on a rock. But today, as we look here at Acts chapter um, 4, but also considering the day of Pentecost there in Acts 2, we really see how God wants to transform us. So just getting all this together, the book of, of Acts, there with the appearance of Barnabas, this happens after the Holy Spirit has come, and we must appreciate that the Holy Spirit wants to sanctify each and every one of us. You out there listening to this, the Holy Spirit wants to sanctify you, and that wants to give us new eyes and ears to see and hear as God wants us to. A lot of people are really frustrated by the world. We realize our world does not have any interest in truth. Well, what do we do about that? We have an interest in truth in our lives. We recognize that Holy Spirit, the act of sanctification, it is a work of grace which gives us new eyes and ears to see and hear as God wants us to. And then God gives us the motivation and power to live according to those new eyes, and that is where freedom is found. A free mind is not a mind without metrics or rules, because that's just chaos, but a free mind is one that is liberated from the inescapable burdens of chaos and no longer a slave to the world, but now free with Christ. All right, so let's look at Barnabas and learn about this rich young ruler. 
So going now to Luke 18, it says, There was a certain ruler who asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good but God alone. You know the commandments. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not murder. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother. And the rich young ruler, he replied, he says, I have kept all of those since my youth. And then in verse 22, when Jesus heard this, he said to him, Still, there is one thing you are lacking. Sell all that you are owning and distribute the money to the poor. And then you will have treasure in heaven. And then come and follow me. But then, when the rich young ruler heard this, he became sad, for he was very rich. So we see this incident here in the Gospels. And again, you can look in uh, Matthew and also Mark for this. We're looking at Luke today. There's a lot of interesting things that happen here. This young man, he has a personal encounter with Jesus, a face-to-face conviction. This isn't something which is ambiguous. Like a lot of times people wonder, you know, is God convicting me to do this or not? There's a little bit of uncertainty that sometimes we have. That's not the case with this, this young man. Jesus tells him exactly what he has to do. He knows the cost of it. It's all clearly laid out. There's no confusion, no ambiguity. And this young man, he has to live with this for a while. Jesus is not the one who condemns him. Jesus doesn't even send him away. He sends himself away, saddened by his own love for his money, for his possessions, for these material items we have here on earth. And that's corrupted him. He has convicted himself and condemned himself. The call to virtue came to him, and he he didn't really want to live up to that. But something happens. Some time later, he finds himself once again coming towards the church, and that's where we're going to go to Acts chapter 4 right now. Now, we don't know exactly the time between his encounter with Jesus and then these few weeks after Jesus has gone to the cross, died, resurrected, the Holy Spirit has come. But at most, it would be three years at like the longest time frame. It's probably not quite that long, but it's, it's, it's been a little while, but not, not too long. This young man still in recent me- memory recalls spending time with Jesus. So let's go now to Acts chapter 4. It says, Now the whole group of those who believed were of one heart and soul. And no one claimed private ownership of any possessions, but everything they owned they held it together in common. And with great power the apostles gave testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them, and for many who owned lands and houses they sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold. They laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as they had need. And there was a Levite, a native of Cyprus, His name was Joseph, and the apostles gave him the name Barnabas, which means son of encouragement. And he sold a field that belonged to him, and he brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. So those last few verses there is is where we see Barnabas come in. And I want us to frame those last two verses of a young man who comes and lays things at the apostles' feet with the rich young ruler. And now Christian tradition holds that this is one and the same man. Joseph, whose name becomes Barnabas, he is the rich young ruler. And if anybody wants to go into sort of the history of why we believe that, let me know and we'll do that in another program. But for now, we're operating on the premise that these are in fact one and the same man. And just for a small justification of that, there's obviously a lot of people coming to the apostles and laying things down at their feet. The fact that Scripture bothers to record this one particular man, there's got to be something special about that. And also, there was indeed a rich young ruler, and something happened to him. 
He was left with a conviction. It, it logically holds that this is the same man. And Christian tradition also records that this is the same man outside of Scripture. So we'll, we'll go with that. So what we see here is the church is thinking very differently. It's not conformed to the world. When the Holy Spirit came to rest with the church on Pentecost, it was truly meant by God that the believers, they would not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your minds, so that you may discern what is the will of God, what is good, acceptable, and perfect. And of course, that is Romans 12 too. God has been wanting us to be transformed, so we're not thinking on worldly terms. This has been the case all throughout Scripture. And really, the day of Pentecost comes and solidifies that where people can actually think freely. So if we accept the premise that Barnabas is indeed the rich young ruler, then he would have had a face-to-face meeting with Jesus where he was convicted to sell his possessions. And again, that wasn't any conviction with confusion, as we might imagine in our own lives, but it was a conviction that came from a face-to-face meeting with Jesus. And Jesus didn't ask him to solve all the problems of the world, but to give up the one thing that held him back, his material wealth. And Barnabas, or Joseph as he would have been then, he clearly knew what he had to do. He was not uncertain about this. He knew exactly what he had to do. And Jesus gave a very in-depth examination of Barnabas. You know, he doesn't look at all of the Ten Commandments, but he looks at several of them. And he asks him about the keeping of these commandments and if he really understood what it means for something to be good. What does the word good actually mean? And in the end, it's not Jesus who condemns Barnabas or sends him away, but Barnabas who freely walked away in the sadness of his own choice. And while many were prideful in their rejection of Jesus, The rich young ruler did not seem at all pleased by the spiritual bondage that he chose to keep. You know, we look through the Gospels, there's a lot of people really, really happy to reject Jesus. Quite proud of it, in fact. In the the early church, there are people who are very proud of beating the apostles, arresting them, casting them out. There's a lot of people who take pride and joy in rejecting Jesus and his church. But the rich young ruler does not really fit that profile. He's quite sad. He, he actually is very unhappy with his rejection of Jesus. But finally, there in Acts chapter 4, we see him being dealt a great amount of liberty. If you can just imagine the weight lifted from his shoulders when he gets there in Acts 4. Now Barnabas, he is young, if he's described as the rich young ruler in the Gospels, but his eyes are open to think, speak, and live differently than the world. He finds real meaning in the church. He understands that holiness It means that the way we see, the way we deal with problems in the world is different. His will, it is now conformed to the Holy Spirit. He is now motivated to live according to the Holy Spirit. And we need to think of sanctification and holiness as having eyes transformed by the Holy Spirit and then being driven to live a life according to that transformation. We have a real issue in the world where young people, and even new Christians, who may not necessarily be young, but they're, they're new to the Christian faith, they're being taught that if you want to change the world, then you need to deal with the topics that are relevant to the world. Moreover, you need to deal with these topics which are relevant to the world using the terms of the world. Now, that's just foolish. It, it really is foolish. And it's, it's something which comes along because people, we, we all know that suffering is, is present in life. We, we like to imagine that our suffering is unique. We, we don't want to reckon with the fact that creation has fallen and, and chaos and suffering, it is everywhere in everybody's lives. 
And we, we want to hear the message that society has personally failed us. And when we hear that message, we get to lash out at society and say, well, let's just remake everything. And we're going to step down into the world in order to change the world. But that, that's not actually how the gospel tells us to, to sort out things. That the gospel gives us a very different worldview. Christ doesn't come just to avoid suffering or even to remove it for his church. In fact, Christ comes to suffer and die on the cross, and he quite clearly tells his followers that they too will undergo great suffering and great persecution. The purpose of life is much deeper than that. It's to overcome it and to build something up which goes up to the throne of heaven. It's not the Tower of Babel where we idolatrously want to you know, siege and overthrow the throne of heaven, but it is the the ladder that goes up towards heaven and it pursues the good things of God and it builds up. Well, what we find in our world is that young people are taught to do the very opposite of that, to to go down into the pits of desperation, to go into the pits of, of victimhood and kind of stay there and have a grievance with the world and lash out, to choose the bondage of one's own self-indulgence. But this is destructive. One is never going to beat the devil at his own game. Instead, we must set aside everything that distracts from the gospel and fully embrace the power of the Holy Spirit. In the book of Acts, we find something pretty interesting. In Acts chapter 3, just going back a chapter, and as time goes, back a day from what we find here in Acts chapter 4, something that happens there is there's a man that is brought to the temple. And he's expecting to have alms. He's somebody who's been lame from birth. He can't walk. He's got some sort of issue with his ankles and feet. And the world brings this man to the temple and expects material charity. Pity, alms, charity, those sort of things is how the world wants to sort out his problem. Specifically, the spiritual people think this is how you deal with this man's problem. You know, you give him pity, charity, and alms. However, Peter and John do not address this man's problems on the terms of finance and pity. Instead, when they see him in Acts chapter 3, they heal him. They're thinking freely. They're not some anarchist who just has chaos in the mind where if you decide that you're a unicorn, you're a unicorn. If you decide that it's good to, to commit murder, it's suddenly good. They're not somebody who is, is chaotic in their thinking, but they are free in their thinking. When the world says, hey, give this man some pity or alms or charity or something like that, they're like, no, how about we heal him? How about we give him the name of Jesus, which can actually free somebody from that inescapable burden? And they do. We also find that Jesus, he doesn't come along to, to think on the world's terms either. You can find somewhere in, in say, John chapter 9, the world is like, hey, is this man born blind because he sinned or his parents sinned? And Jesus is like, no, we're actually not supposed to think like that. This man is blind, and you're going to see the glory of God through him. The world sees tax collector sinners, but Jesus sees a man called Matthew. The church is supposed to live up to the gospel in its ability to think freely and clearly. We shouldn't be in lockstep with the world. We shouldn't be mimicking how the world views problems. When the world comes along and says, hey, there's a difference between you know, the Samaritans and the Levites and we need to do something about this, well, the answer is to stop seeing them as Levites and Samaritans. Start seeing them as children of God who need that restoration. You're never going to beat the devil at his own game. 
And throughout the book of Acts, we see the church thinking differently. They're not hung up in the weeds of alms, pity, and all the terms of the world, but instead they see the world in the terms of the gospel, and they're moved to bless people. And similarly, we can even look at the message that Jesus preaches, something like the Sermon on the Mount, and when he responds to issues in the world. You know, two of the popular religious teachers at the time were the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Now, both of these groups, they believed and taught a lot of stuff. Each group actually had some things right and some other things wrong. The Pharisees actually believed in a bodily resurrection, and that's something which is true. Jesus could have gave them credit for that. The Sadducees, their mentality was, you know, the law, it is, it is sufficient to do all this stuff. And, you know, Jesus, he doesn't come to eradicate the law. He comes to fulfill it, to, to take things to another level, not to take in and tear things down. But Jesus, in the Sermon on the Mount, he doesn't come and parse about the technical details where he says, well, you know, the Pharisees got this right and the Sadducees got this right. He doesn't come like a lawyer or some sort of advisor or even, you know, technical analyst who comes along and says, this is where this group has this much right. This is where that group has that much right. And we need to somehow weave all these things together and then we'll all be right. Jesus doesn't do that at all. Jesus comes and teaches something fundamentally different. It's not fundamentally different in the sense that it rejects the, the God of the Old Testament, as some might say, or something like that. But he comes and says, actually, God is God. He's the same yesterday and today. We've misunderstood some things, but I'm not here to parse that out. What I'm here to do is to affirmatively show you what it looks like to live in the love of God. To make the case, to show you the love of God. And you know, there's a lot of people who want to split the baby in two, to use a King Solomon reference. You know, in the story of Solomon, there are two mothers who come to Solomon, and one of the mothers has lost a child, and the other one, her child is still alive. And the mother that lost a child stole the other one's baby. And Solomon has no idea who's the real mother, who's the, the mother who's lying, and has suffered the tragedy of losing a child, but has now turned malevolent and stole another child. Solomon doesn't know which mother is which. And when given the situation, he, he has wisdom, and he says, you know, let's split the baby in two and give half of a baby to each woman. That way both will be happy, right? Well, the real mother speaks up and says, no, no, don't cut the baby in two. Let her have the baby. Let the baby live. And the other mother's like, well, let's split it in two. We'll be, we'll be fine with that. And Solomon looks at the situation and says, ah, the woman that wanted the baby to live, that's the real mother. Give her the whole child. Don't kill the baby. The woman that's over here that wants the baby split in two, she's not the real mother. She's already lost. She's okay watching the world burn if another child dies. She's already been tragically, you know, maimed. But there's a lot of people in our world who actually think you could have pleased both women. Obviously, one woman doesn't walk away satisfied by that because she lost her child and she didn't get a new child. She didn't even get to watch another woman have that same tragedy. Both parties in that situation were not pleased. But there's a lot of people in our world who think you can split that baby in two and make everybody happy, but you can't. You can't. We have to realize 
There is a heaven to be admired and a hell to be repulsed, and we must affirmatively make the case of what is good with God. That's not going to please everybody. That's all right. We're thinking freely. We're thinking differently than the world. And we're thinking more and more perfectly. Now, what is so remarkable about Barnabas in Acts chapter 4, 36 is not that he's doing something charitable with money. Money is merely a circumstantial fact. But we don't need to dismiss it too quickly because we do need to talk about it because people will look at something like Acts chapter 4 and they'll say, well, ah, we need to have socialism because socialism, socialism is like the New Testament. No, no, it's not at all. Nowhere in Acts chapter 4 or Acts chapter 2 where you see a similar thing is there a government involved. Nobody's forcing this. This is what people are willingly doing. This is not somebody who says, I don't have much, but there's a ruling class over there that does have much, and I want to take their wealth and distribute it so that I have more in my, my life. Or maybe people say, well, it's not for me, but for those poor people over there, I want that rich person's money taken and given to that person's over there. No, that's sinful. That's covetousness. What you find in Acts is people willingly doing things with their own pocketbook. As it says there in, in Paul in Ephesians 4, you know, the thief gives up stealing so that he can work with his hands and his hands produce something for someone else. Now, what we find in Acts chapter 4 is real charity. This is not involving a government, some third party. It's not involving somebody who wants to redistribute wealth and have an equal outcome for all people. It's none of that. What it is, is people giving of their own heart, being charitable. So that's, that's, that's an important thing to point out here, but let's get back to the material of our, our message today. What's remarkable about Barnabas is not just confined to the money. The money is important, but the money is important because it's his idol. It's the one thing that he wouldn't let go. And we know this is the case because when you go back to the Gospels and you hear that story of the rich young ruler, when Jesus says it's harder for a rich man to get into heaven than for a camel to pass through the eye of the needle, Everybody wants to say, ah, so being wealthy is the, the inherent sin. If everybody's poor, they go straight to heaven. It's kind of what the disciples are thinking because they ask Jesus. They say, well, who then can get into heaven? And Jesus looks at him and says, nobody. In fact, it's impossible for mortals. Only through God. There's no magic formula. There's no magic formula that says if you're, you're poor, you automatically get in. Or if you're, you're wealthy you're automatically kicked out. It actually has to do with the, uh, the contents of your heart. Whether you actually love God or not, it, it actually matters what's going on in your soul, not just what's going on in the, the world around you. Your soul matters. Your heart matters. And to that point, the gospel wants people to be free. And my, oh my, how beautiful that is. Because Barnabas, he's been freed. If you can imagine, we don't know the exact time frame between when he met Jesus and when he actually gave up his, his wealth and his field there to the church, but he had to live with that for, you know, a couple of years maybe. And he would have felt slave to that. He walks away sad of his own conviction. He, he convicts himself. But now he's been freed from that. And he's not doing anything like the world is doing. This sort of, of charity 
is not something which is found in the world. The world will try to do like a fake imitation of it with something like socialism. It'll try to twist this into something that is a monster because that's what hell does. It perverts real things. It, it perverts the real virtues of God. The real charity that is going on here where people are actually working to, to give something to their neighbor, that's a very rare thing. And sanctification, the second work of the Holy Spirit, it does something more than just give us a life turned from sin. It certainly does give us a life free from sin, but it does something more than that too. It liberates our minds so that we can think clearly as God designed. When we look at the early church, its members are not wrought with insanity, but with a clarity of mind. Sanctification, the act of the Holy Spirit which brings us into a life of holiness, it enables us to fully love God so that we can then fully love our neighbor. And we see this transformation in Barnabas. So that's where we're going to wrap up this message. I thank anyone who is dropped by. It's cold and icy outside. Normally we would be looking at Mark chapter 5 today, but we're going to postpone that for a week. And I'm just going to do this short little Bible study on Acts 4 with Barnabas because I want us to appreciate and see the great value of how God wants your mind to be free. To not think like the world. You want to make a difference? Start thinking freely with God. Because it's not like a thousand choices out there. It's not like you can choose from a, a buffet of ideas and them all be equally valid. In the end, there's really only two ways. There's the way of life and the way of death. There's worldly thinking, which is wide with a lot of different avenues and schools of thought. And then there is biblical thinking. There is holy thinking. And one of those leads to death, and the other leads to, to the beautiful life with God. So thank you for joining me. I'm Pastor J. Dylan Proctor. Let's close by saying the Lord's Prayer together, and we'll wrap this up. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. And on that, thank you for joining me. God love you, and have a blessed day.